1: Welcome, bibliophiles. All of you out there, I'm Charlie Gibson. Welcome to Another Bookcase.
2: I am Kate Gibson. How are you? Really excited to have you back, bibliophiles. I'll have to look that (laughs) word up later. No, I'm just kidding. Today, our guest is Michael Finkel, whose new book, The Art Thief, focuses around an incredibly prolific art thief who was amazingly successful that you might not have heard of. His name is Stefan Breitwieser. And not to sound too, you know, David Hasselhoffy, but he's really big in Europe. (laughs) He he went across Europe and he stole billions of dollars worth of art, sometimes in highbrow ways, sometimes in lowbrow ways. It is a fascinating
1: story. I'm not sure many Americans know the story of Stefan Breitwieser, but Kate's right. The amazing statistic to me is he stole a valuable piece of art every 12 days for seven years, and he didn't sell it. He kept it for his own appreciation and for, I guess, for his own ego as well. He stashed it all on the walls of an attic room in his mother's house. Like you do. Like you do, so that he could look at the art. But it's a wild story because he got away with it. As Kate said, it's the most lowbrow, he didn't lower himself from the ceiling with a rope around his ankles. He, he just walked in and stole it right under the eyes of guards. It's just amazing that he would get away with this. He did for a long time. And Michael has done a wonderful job of chronicling this fellow's story in a book which, appropriately, is named The Art Thief.
2: It is. It's a very twisted, really. I mean, the apparently the Swiss police said that he stole over 60 different ways. That means that he used 60 different, over 60 different methodologies to steal things. And some of them were just, hey, I'm going to toss this out a window and hope that a Bush catches it and I'll grab it on my way out. He sometimes had multiple burglaries a day. And they were sometimes as low end as just putting in an index card saying object removed for study. All he needed was a lookout and a Swiss army knife. And he made away with billions of dollars worth of art. And he thinks of himself as an art liberator because he thinks, I think, of museums as almost art prisons. I think this guy genuinely believed that he could appreciate, love and study the art better than a museum could preserve it. I mean, there's such arrogance in that. I mean, he is a fascinating, very strange character, extremely eccentric, and this is a great story.
1: As a credit to Michael's craft, he makes this fellow somewhat sympathetic. Do you root for him? No, but you begin to think, hey, this guy's amazing. Anyway, uh, Michael tells the story probably better than we do. The Art Thief is the book. And it is the story of this fellow Stefan Breitwieser. If ever you heard that truth can be stranger than fiction, his story certainly fits that bill.
2: Here we go. Our conversation with Michael Finkel. Michael Finkel, it is such a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. The new book, The Art Thief, you know, when I do this for a living and so everybody always asks me, what are you reading right now? And so when I told them about The Art Thief and gave them the brief like two or three sentences on Stefan Breitwieser's story, most of them had never heard of it. And so I have two questions. Why have most people never heard of this story? And how did he get away with what he was doing for so long?
0: Well, first of all, I am so happy and honored to be here. I'm thrilled that you've chosen to discuss The Art Thief. So Stefan Breitwieser, the reason why probably everyone listening to this uh, has not heard of him is that he is French. Uh, he lives in the Alsacian region of northeastern France. We spoke to each other in French. He did tell me that I was the first American journalist that he's ever uh, spoken to at length. And how does someone get away with more than 200 crimes? How did he steal from museums that many times without getting caught? And I think the simplest answer is that he's a great thief and he didn't try to sell the stolen works. He just enjoyed them, which makes him different from almost every art thief that's really ever lived. I think if I was writing fiction, I don't think I would be so bold as to make a, something as unbelievable as a Stefan Breitwieser. He, it's just like, if this was fiction, you would just throw the book across the room and saying, this is completely not believable. And the fact that it's not just true, it's been, you know, thoroughly and carefully fact-checked, it makes it all the more extraordinary. So I think that he felt sort of like, He was a very accomplished thief and I don't think he ever thought he would get caught. So I'm going to say that he felt that he sort of deserved to to have these works of art and thought that he could outsmart everyone for as long as he wanted to. At his first trial, the Swiss authorities listed 60 different methods of stealing, ranging from (laughs) as basic as throwing something out the window. I think my favorite of his, you know, simplicity equals success is uh, finding a card in a display case saying, you know, object removed for study and you see this <coughs> museum and just using this object, like literally an index card bent in half to make a little tent that says object removed for study <laughs> is possibly the greatest art stealing tool of all time. Forget skylight <laughs> entries, forget smoke bombs and anything else that, you know, Tom Cruise might use. Just fold an index card in half and make sure it says in whatever language from what country you're stealing from, it just make sure it says objects removed for study and put that that object in your pocket and that uh, the genius is in simplicity, I guess.
1: He wasn't lowering himself through a glass ceiling, you know, with a rope around his ankles. He wasn't picking extraordinary locks. He was walking into a museum, stuffing what he wanted under his coat and walking out.
2: Now, he did have a lookout. He did have a lookout. That's, I think, important.
1: His girlfriend was a lookout. But you also make a really important point was he wasn't stealing for money. And you say in the book he was disdainful of other art thieves, he considered them beneath contempt because they were selling for money? I think for two reasons. The main reason why I think he, yeah, it's funny that this
0: is like the greatest art thief of all time who doesn't really want to be called an art thief, not because he denies stealing (laughs) any art, because really he feels that other art thieves have given the name, the term art thief a bad, you know, just a bad reputation. (laughs) Um, I think when someone thinks about art crime, they think perhaps about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, which is still to this day unsolved, worth about, I think 13 objects were stolen worth about half a billion dollars. But those thieves, to steal the paintings, the two Rembrandts and other items took a knife and literally just sliced the painting out of its frame, which to Breitwieser was akin to just the most horrible action one could ever do. And you now he's an art thief, just like saying like these other art thieves are just, they're hurting the painting. Also, he really disdained violence in these art. the Isabella Stewart, Gardner thieves came in the night. They attacked the guards. They handcuffed, I mean, you can only imagine the terror that these guards felt. They handcuffed them to pipes in the basement. These are just anathema to someone like Stefan Breitwieser. He really thought that you should take a piece of art in a certain gentlemanly, perhaps, way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love the fact that he steals sort of adhering to the Marcus of Queensbury rules, that you do it in a gentlemanly fashion. But you say in the book, he prefers not to be thought of himself as a thief, but an art collector with an unorthodox acquisition style. No joke. (laughs) That's an unorthodox acquisition (laughs) style. He thought of himself as an art liberator. Liberator? How? How? Just because Breitwieser said it does not mean that I personally agree with this.
0: <laughs> however, right. however, let's just, I mean, I love going to museums. I've been a museum goer since Breitwieser, you know, as a kid himself, I, I started when I was a kid. But we can be honest that nobody goes and says, oh, when I saw the Mona Lisa, what a wonderful, what a wonderful communal experience. I communed with the piece of art. No, you're just being pushed and shoved and people have (laughs) self I mean, when's the last time you sat in a comfortable couch in a museum and were able to see a Rembrandt and just maybe sip a glass of wine and maybe come, you know, in the evening, come take a look at it again? Museums as wonderful as they are, one of the greatest of all public institutions, really was not the ideal way to see a piece of art. And Breitwieser felt so strongly about this, that, you know, being jammed in with other people, you know, your knees start, my, my knees start hurting within half an hour on those uncomfortable floors and just all the jostling. That is that is not the way that art should be absorbed. And so Breitwieser thought that by removing them From museums and hanging them in in his uh, attic bedroom, he was liberating this art and allowing it to be this piece of art to be enjoyed the way it should be. Now, again, this is quite irrational logic if if one could put those two words together.
2: No, I mean I feel that way every time I take a piece of my child's artwork home from the art room. I feel like I'm liberating it. (laughs) I am, you know, when when a case is this unusual, an art thief who essentially hoards the art you know, a lot of people examine this guy and you quote a lot of therapists and now, and and they don't quite agree that he's a kleptomaniac and they don't quite agree that he's a hoarder. You've now spent 40 hours with him, as you say. What's wrong with him?
0: Well, Kate, I I think... I mean, not putting on my psychologist cap for a second, but (laughs) first of all, you know, as we, as we all know, like the, even just trying to determine what is going on between someone else's ears is always a challenging thing. But really the psychologist that spent the most time with him really thought that he was truly smitten and obsessed with art. I believe that if Wright visa happened to have been born into a, you know, a multi-billionaire family, then he might have just purchased the work that he wanted. Um, might have. Uh, there's also a case to be made that he really enjoyed part of his thieving. But maybe I'm being a little naive, but I don't think so. Having spent so much time with Breitwieser, I really think that he truly was smitten by some of these pieces of art and made sure that he could justify, no matter how what twisted uh, logic he could use, justify stealing them. He was truly an esthete of a sort of uh, let's just let's just make up a psychological term, like maybe a uh, obsessive esthete.
2: Well, I mean, what's interesting, though, is in some ways you do sort of amalgamate the opinions. And on page 63, you refer to him as a brat, <laughs> which in some ways, I mean, just and I don't mean that in, in a totally derivative term. I mean that in a way that that he never seemed to learn that. That just because you see something doesn't mean you don't get to have it. I'm not sure if that's a psychological diagnosis.
0: (laughs) I mean, I agree. Listen, you spend enough time writing uh, something. I I try to be as fair as possible to bright reader, but you know what, Kate, I agree with you. He's a brat. He's a spoiled brat. You mentioned his girlfriend who served as his lookout. His mother, sort of. I think she sort of knew more or less what he was doing. And certainly later in the game knew precisely what he was doing. Someone really needed to, uh, sit right visa down and maybe tell him to quit this. And I was almost thinking he needed like good spanking. I don't, you know, I I, I don't (laughs) think that's, you know, I'm not a corporal punishment guy, but this is a person who probably needed to be, uh, uh, to be. Deep Yeah. He's a brat. And he's also at the same time, you know, without question, an art lover to an
1: extreme degree. No, you do something extraordinary as a writer, which is you take this guy who steals, in the estimates of some art aficionados, up to two billion dollars worth of art. He takes all of this art, and you begin to not root for him, but you you begin to you begin to think this is this is um, sort of he's a knave. I can't say you have sympathy with him, but you you sort of admire him in a way. Did you feel that way when you spent all those hours talking to him? I I would never, I mean, I would, of course, dream of taking something from a museum.
0: I think we all go through museums and think, wow, I mean, I got a great spot over my fireplace for this particular work. Right. And the fact that he sort of bizarrely sort of fulfilled my kind of creepy, evil fantasy of stealing a piece of, I mean, I would love to have a Rembrandt on my wall or a Krenak or a Durer or a Renaissance painting on my wall for just a I maybe mean, one evening. And he sort of fulfilled this bizarrely, I think we all kind of have these thoughts that float through our heads in museum and he fulfilled that. And he did it in a way that you could allow yourself to be, if not rooting for him, but somewhat impressed without violence, without anyone even so much as sensing fear and not intending to harm any artwork. And so I do love these anti-heroes. They're the people that sort of appeal to me because I am too scared to even, I I couldn't even take a chocolate bar.
2: (laughs) And I love, I mean, when you talk about the ripping of it, when he talks about what he is disgusted by with our thieves and you talk about the ripping of the sound of the ripping of the canvas and the paint flex coming off in the air, I do have Great sympathy for his disgust with art thieves. You do put that into perspective. So that helped also made me root for him a little bit. I was like, yeah, throw it out the window. Go for
0: it. I think, you know, in my mind, I would be like, I would, pl- it took me 10 years to write a book. I think I would plan my my art crime for a decade, with, you know, down to each precise moment where Stefan was able to just, at in a moment's notice, steal something. And I think maybe we can talk about like, when he was the ad, he stole from museums, he stole from churches, he stole from galleries, and he sometimes stole from art fairs. and there was one time he was at an art fair in the Netherlands, and an uh, art thief was caught stealing yes. of art, causing a massive commotion. and in like an instant, he sees like everyone is running towards this art thief and thinks, "What?" An amazing opportunity to steal. <laughs> while someone else. I don't think I think I would have to go home and plot that out for months before I would come up with something like that. And he had the mind to be able to. Uh, I'm going to steal while someone else is stealing, and got away with it. And that is shockingly impressive. And
1: sort of like I have to tip my cap. As Kate and I read the book, we talked to each other, and Kate raised an interesting question, which goes to your approach as a journalist documenting this story. How do you sift through what could well be a whole series of lies told by the person who is a thief and come up with what you think is the truth? How do you process all that? And by the way, if you think that's a good question, I'd just like to remind you it was mine. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think it's a great question. <laughs> like, <yeah. laughs> and not only is it a, not only, I think it's the most appropriate question too. Like, yeah, of course, everybody, when they're being interviewed, they want to mold their own reputation. So of course I spent not just as many hours as possible interviewing Breitfizer, but checking every police report that was available, talking to the two main detectives that hunted Breitfizer down and the lawyers that both represented him and prosecuted him and cross-checked everything possible. Now, because I was able to talk to Bright Vieser himself, as I mentioned in the very early in the book, there are some level of detail that only comes from him. But the beats of each of his crimes are able to be independently verified. And that only makes everything more astonishing. It's not like he stole two or three works of art and said he stole 200. There are police reports for every single one. I spent a couple of years trying to track down everything I could, including some of his home videos that show all the stolen works in his attic bedroom. He lived in his mother's house, which also just like adds another wrinkle of just ridiculousness to the whole story.
2: Was there anything that surprised you about him when you finally met him in person? I think there's
0: a, there's a, um, a good line from one of his, um, psychologists that says the most extraordinary thing about Stefan Breitwieser is how ordinary He is, this is why he was able to get away with everything. He can sort of blend into a room. So we did a few road trips together where I tried to retrace some of the steps. And when I was sitting in the car next to him, we would have a conversation, but he was almost, I'm not gonna say catatonic, but very quiet, very reserved. And when we walked into a museum together, this change that came over him, like he had just done a triple shot of espresso, this sort of like awakening. <laughs> like, I mean, I, have, I probably have never had a more bizarre experience than walking through an art museum with perhaps the world's greatest art thief. I, I almost am like I'm almost going to start sweating when thinking about it. <laughs> So some of the things that I did. So he put on a light disguise, just a baseball cap and fake glasses and was able to enter museums from which he had stolen. And I remember sitting in front of a um, Rubens painting, one of the great painters of the Northern Europe during the Renaissance. And he took my hand. All right, I'm just going to knit this. Why not? Know. This is definitely not in the book. And he took my hand and brushed my fingertips over a painting in a museum. Yes, he was seeing where the guards were and said, can you feel these ridges? Can you feel this? What the painting? And I could. And I have to tell you, like it, like raised goosebumps. I mean, not because of not just because of the nervousness. And I, I know that this is not allowed, but also just this physical tactile connection that you can have with a work of art. And the, it, was eight, it was like a moment where I sort of felt Breitweiser's sort of level of enthusiasm. And it's true, like paintings are three-dimensional, not two-dimensional, as we might think, of course. And this sort of like Jekyll and Hyde in a museum and not in a museum really was astonishing to me.
1: Was the Rubens painting still there when you left the museum? <laughs> I sure hope so.
2: I'm interested when you, and and it sort of follows up on my dad's question. You've written a couple of books with sources where you have to essentially be a human lie detector. How do you approach that as a writer? And how do you know you finally reach the phase of research where you're like, no, I've done it. I've gotten as close to an approximation of the truth as I believe in, and I'm ready to start writing. How do you know?
0: I think with a lot of things in writing, you don't know. Uh, everything in writing is like, uh, I, I weirdly wish I could tell you, yeah, this is like, this is the perfect sentence. This is the perfect amount of research. This is the tone. But every, I feel like a guy at a, um, at a soundboard at a concert with a, you know, those million dials. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to tell you the, the truth, which is, it is really just a, a feeling, a sense. And I also think there's a time when my wife says, Mike, that is enough reading. Like, I, I, will, <laughs> I will research obsessively. Like, I want to know everything there is to know about like, art from the beginning of time until yesterday. And I want to talk to every single person that may have encountered Stefan Breitbieser. But again, I think you eventually reach a, a law of extraordinarily diminishing returns. If you've checked everything as many times as possible and feel that uh, it's, let's just go with it's a strong feeling in my gut that I have got everything that I can possibly get. But I know there's one more book I could read, but I've reached my serious diminishing returns. And I feel it's something that is something inside me is like, okay, I feel like I have, I'm bursting with ideas and it's time to uh, push all my research to the side. When I write, I, uh, I don't know. You ever know in a baseball game, there's like this thing called, they call the batter's eye where there's like a black screen behind. So you can see the baseball. So I don't like to have any of my research in my peripheral vision. I push everything behind me, like literally bookshelves behind me. And I just like, start writing with a blank wall in front of me. And if I put in any more information, it's going to leak out the other side. And I know that I am ready to write.
2: Well, and I also like the idea that, you know, you're ready to write when Jill is like, I'm going to leave you. If you don't start writing, you're driving me crazy. <laughs> I like that too. That works.
0: I, know, I wish you I wish he would hear, she'd be like, yeah. And then he does another six months.
1: <laughs> I had a, a fellowship for a period of time at Harvard. And one of my fellow fellows, was Tracy Kidder, who writes, I think, somewhat in your field. He spent the year trying to figure out what was his next book, and he wasn't coming up with it. It was frustrating. How do you know when you found a subject that is going to lend itself well to a book?
0: I guess I look for something that sort of falls between the cracks. There's things that are covered by the daily paper. There are things that are covered beautifully by television news. But I look for like these, I don't know, I'm picturing these like slow sine waves, like rather than something that's going to take a long time. And every time you sort of go around or find another, this particular story is about aesthetic obsession, about thieving, about art, about mother, son, girlfriend relationships. I think it's something where it opens up like a flower where you there's just no way you could summarize this in a page, two pages, five pages. And I usually take a magazine article as a sort of testing ground. And if I write a magazine article and I'm like, oh, I think I've said everything that has to be said. And I really think about readers when I'm writing. I don't know what other writers say about that, but I always think about the people that are reading it. And if I feel like, okay, a reader doesn't need to know anything more then I've stopped at a magazine article. But if I finish a magazine article, I'm like, wow, I feel like the reader just really just got the cliff notes here. Then I continue on with a book. And again, gosh, I hate to go back to this, but the truth of most of this profession is that it is like you have to sort of trust some sort of instinct. And I've been in the writing game for quite a while. So I just trust my instinct, but I also worry about it at the same time. Time?
2: <laughs> do I sound a little full, filled nope. with filled with I know filled, exactly filled. what you mean? Trust your instincts and be completely wary of them at the same time. I'm totally with you on that.
0: Exactly. As as Kipling might have <laughs> said in, in if I think that's one of those things, you know, be, be sure, but don't don't ignore other people's opinions. Also, I do. I have I have my group of rabbis as I call them. I'm like, do you think this is a good idea? And I I also do what I call my barroom. Test. I mean, you can call it a coffee shop test in Utah, whatever you want, but like I sit down and I start telling the story. <laughs> and if the person I'm telling the story doesn't, like, you know, seem bored, if they have, have a lot more questions, and it goes on and on and on. I know that, you know, this is probably a good yarn.
1: Breitwieser denies
0: that he's a kleptomaniac. Why isn't he a kleptomaniac? According to the DSM, the great book of uh, mm-hmm. s- uh, psychological disorders, is that a kleptomaniac has a couple of distinct features, which is the most important one is all kleptomaniacs feel this after stealing something, they feel this letdown steeped in like shame and regret. And also they, by definition, a kleptomaniac really is the object is to steal, not the item stolen. It's the action. And so Brightwieser was very specific about what item he stole. And rather than feeling shame or regret, felt elation, excitement and celebratory, Mm. you know, Instinct. So he really, I think as the book progresses, as his story progresses, as his history progresses, I believe that he started out really loving the art and sort of afraid of the stealing. And by late in the game, I, let's just say, I think he also liked stealing
2: the Earth Thief by Michael Finkel. It was a real page turner for me and not a story I knew. And I don't think a story a lot of people know a lot about. If you don't know who Stefan Breitfizer is, pick up this book. It's a fascinating character. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thanks for listening to me babble on. I really appreciate
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. It was good fun. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
2: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author.
1: And I'm Sabrina
2: Colbert
1: All right. Rapid fire questions from Michael Finkel. If you were going to steal a piece of art, what would you steal? I think I would steal a Picasso. i joined that club. Most stolen artist of all time. Hmm.
2: Do you spend more time writing or researching?
1: Researching. Is there a book that made you want to become a journalist? The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm. Hmm. Why? It's... perfectly paced,
0: beautifully. It's sort of like damning indictment of journalists while at the same time a celebration. And I just love the way she writes.
2: When you question why you do this for a living, is there an article that you go back to and you reread?
0: I think I read all of John McPhee's articles. I wonder if people today, anybody who's under my age in the 50s, everybody should read all of John McPhee's articles. Wow. Nonfiction can be as beautiful as fiction. And I think that's what John McPhee taught me. An amazing writer. I think he teaches at Princeton to this day. Advice you would give to a journalist starting up? Do not have any preconceived notions at all. Keep your mind completely open and follow your curiosity to the end and then maybe even beyond the end, whatever that is.
2: So you're casting the art thief movie. Who plays Bright Visser?
0: Timothy Chalamet. Ooh.
2: And Anne Catherine?
0: Wow. I haven't thought about Anne Catherine, his girlfriend. Let's go with uh, Felicity Jones, who uh, she's a British actress who played Mm -hmm. in um, a movie that that was made of one of my previous books. And I think she's fantastic. And my wife and her became became somewhat friends. And so she'd be perfect.
2: And then the last one, this is going to be a little bit harder. Who plays his mom?
0: (laughs) Uh, Let's see. um, Olivia Coleman. Ooh, good one. (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't ready for any of these
1: questions. You spent a lot of money on that cast. <laughs> what are you reading right now? And do you tend to read more fiction or nonfiction?
0: When I'm researching, I read nonfiction until the end of time. And then when I want to not, I, I read more fiction for pleasure, tend to be. Jealous of great uh, nonfiction writers, David Grant, everything like that. What I'm reading right now, I'm I, this is on my bedside so table, The Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley by uh, Hannah Tinty. I met her and she gave me this book and I started reading on the plane. I just... Finished reading tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Mm. Ooh, yes! Wonderful, wonderful. I read it. I I thought I would have it for the whole vacation, but I couldn't put it down on the flight from uh, Salt Lake to Paris, and so it's done. <laughs> Great book,
2: revered book that you've read that perhaps you wish you hadn't. <laughs>
0: uh, Silas Marner. A lot of the things that were assigned to me, and you know, I, I sometimes you know I, I have teenage children, and I sometimes. When they're assigned something that's extremely difficult, I, I feel that sometimes they take that difficulty and apply it to all literature. And so, I mean, the only thing I, can, I say to my children, if you're really, really struggling with something, God, this is a bad thing to say. Just close the book and go on to another one. There's so many books.
2: I relate. In one of your books, you say, I've lied about myself a few times. And one of the lies is I finished James Joyce's Ulysses. James Joyce's Ulysses is my father's and my choice for the answer to that question. I just want to say that.
0: Might I add, by the way, that I can no longer, I have now finished reading this. this you is, finished it. This is actually, not only that, let me just tell you something funny if you have a moment. So yes. when my first child, Phoebe, was born, I had read somewhere that you should read to your child. And i literally have like a 24 hour old infant in my lap. And I'm like, Shh, this, she's not going to understand what I'm reading. And I started reading Ulysses to her out loud. <laughs> I read the entire book out loud. And if she wasn't in my lap, I would not read it. And so not only did I read Ulysses, my daughter no longer has to read Ulysses because she heard every single (laughs) Good,
1: good. Was she ever wounded by that experience? And the final question, something we stole from Stephen Colbert. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be?
0: Adventurous, unpredictable, healthy, Happy and let's go! Um, I don't know how to say uh, uh, filled with delicious food. Uh, delicious. <laughs> <Okay>. I'll call <laughs> filled with so delicious food one word. We'll put, just put some hyphens in there somehow. We'll make it an adjectival phrase.
1: So, what do you take away from that, Kate? I think it's really interesting. There's two questions about it. Number one: How do you really come up with a psychological profile of somebody who? like this doesn't think he's stealing, doesn't think necessarily he's immoral, is contemptuous of other art thieves who might try to sell their art. That's one, how you come up with a profile of him. And number two, I thought your question was an interesting one. How do you, when you're dealing with a crook like this and a liar, uh, how do you finally come to discern what is the truth so that you feel your book is accurate?
2: Well, it's really interesting. His most famous work is called True Story, A Memoir, Murder, and Maya Culpa. And it's the story of Michael's fall from Grace at the New York Times. I won't tell say too much, but totally separate from his fall from Grace at the New York Times. He ends up investigating a man who murdered his family and used Michael Finkel's name that he literally lifted from a byline. He used Michael Finkel's name when he was living in Mexico, trying to get away with murder. And Michael goes and investigates this family killer's story. And this family killer is also, uh, his name is Christian Longo. He is also a chronic liar, almost like it's ingrained in him that lying is... Is something he can't not do, to use the double negative. And the art thief, Stefan Breitwieser, Breitwieser presents a similar problem, which is that these two people are completely unself aware and they have very specific pictures of who they are. And they're very anxious for the world to accept the pictures that they have created of themselves. And I would imagine, as a journalist, it's just very hard. The process of putting together the truth. From the mosaic of lies that his subjects have presented him is a challenge, and he does it very well.
1: Yeah, I thought Michael explained it very well, that that you do it by double-checking sources and going to source after source after source and trying to sift through all the evidence. We're getting back to uh, having a bookstore with us every week, and uh, today it is Headhouse Books in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it's a different bookstore, as Richard explains. (music) Richard DeWeingart, it is good to have you with us from Head House Books. Tell me a little bit about the store.
3: First, it's a pleasure to be with uh, both of you, Kate and Charlie. Thanks for having me on. Headhouse Books located in the part of the oldest parts of Philadelphia, sort of on the border between Queen Village and Society Hill. And it's a lovely sort of integral part of the fabric of the community now. It's it's fabulous.
2: How did you end up there? Talk to me about how you ended up in the business. How did you fall into the... So
3: how did I end up in the business? That's really interesting. So I was in another... I was. I used to say entirely unrelated business, but now I understand that there is a, a real connection. At the time, it was unknown to me. Um, I was in the auction business before that. And so I was very much around... Uh, it was about aesthetics and it was about creating an environment that sort of seduced you visually and knowing your market. And... Headhouse Books is sort of that's very foundational to our philosophy. As soon as you walk in, we create a space that allows you to be sort of seduced or, or quiet, and just we want you to open up and be make accessible that which you hadn't even anticipated before you go in. My worst customer, but not my no, they can be great customers. What I don't like or doesn't I see any customer is a good customer. <laughs> <laughs> is when they come in with a specific list of books that they, which is great. I mean, that obviously, you know, pays the rent, but, but I love when people come in and they're like, just allow themselves to breathe and to take in and right to leave with something that they hadn't considered when they walked in. That mm-hmm. I think is
1: the ideal Headhouse Books customer. Mm-hmm. I love on your website, it says, we sell you books that you don't know you needed. And that's, it's a very nuanced, And unusual, actually, list of books that you recommend on the website. Very individualistic.
3: Curated is an overused word now. So let me just say it's sort of assiduously sort of put together, like with great commitment to opening your senses. And so I don't, there are a lot of things that I don't buy if I think you are reflexively going to just go to some behemoth online vendor. I don't, why would I waste my time? Or if, if it's a great airport read, fabulous, go pick up, Number of those sort of you know very plot driven books that are great, but they're not. But brings people to Headhouse books.
1: I mentioned that you have an unusual list of recommendations yep. on your website, which I thought was really interesting. And then I read an article about you that said your favorite books of all time hmm. were three books I'd never heard of. Which ones? Uh, they? Shantaram. Yep. The Sense of an Ending. And Straight Man, you said, is the funniest book you ever read. Oh, oh, um,
2: oh, I love Straight Man by Richard Russo. I love that, that book. That's, that's a great his, book.
1: That, I, a funny story with that.
3: I ran into Richard at one of these conferences, and we we're in the elevator together. And I saw his name, and I said, oh, Richard, I have a funny story. One of the funniest books I've ever read. I was on the beach with my three daughters, and I was laughing so hard, they moved away from me. And he said, are you sure it was the book? <laughs>
4: <laughs> He's a great guy.
3: Great sense of humor. Very funny about the dysfunction of a liberal arts college and everyone vying for tenure. Love that book. And actually, but my new favorites, I'm on a different sort of uh, the scope, which is probably one of the best books I've read in 10 years is Outline. I don't know. You probably, have you read Outline? Uh-uh. By Rachel Cusk? Oh. No. So seductive. No. Outline by? Rachel
1: Cusk. She's British but probably their best writer. I would say one of the best writers anywhere. I loved your quote in the website of it. You send people on a journey of nuanced discovery yeah. that enriches the senses. Yeah. That's a pretty broad palette, but you have such a wide variety of books that you recommend art books, kids books. What I'm really struck, what varietal there is in your list of recommendations.
3: It really is. You know, there's not well in, in the store too. There's, there's not an inch, I mean i always say when that's why people try to you know you're besieged in any business right but people want you to sell their book or this is the worst thing a good customer who's just written a book and i'm thinking oh no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but and it's hard because the real estate is expensive right there's just not a, it's like manhattan right there's not enough of it and i except i can't keep going up. right so it's it's tough and every book has to just be so Carefully chosen and placed, and and I yell, I don't yell. I see always suggesting to my booksellers when they're not as as attentive to the aesthetics. And I'll say you can't put those two books next to one another because it, you know they they don't complement. Right? They the one is big, one is small, with the wrong colors, and it really is. It is like a symphony when you go in. You want everything's got to work, or, or it disrupts the music the dream yeah
2: it comes across as a cacophony rather than a symphony yeah
3: exactly Mm -hmm. exactly Mm -hmm.
1: so
2: thank you so much yeah
1: richard DeWineGuard, it has been a pleasure to have you with us it is head house books it's on south second street in philadelphia go there richard in our first podcast oprah said you will was our guest and she said you will succeed if you are enthusiastic You are enthusiastic, Mm -hmm. and I think any customer, if they see you in the store, will come away the same way. Thanks for being with us.
3: Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation, and good luck with all
1: podcasts. Okay, nice meeting both of you. Yeah, take care. Thank you. We want to remind you of who makes this podcast possible, and then we will have something of a closing from Michael Finkel.
2: The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer, and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian.
0: If you get a chance, touch a painting very lightly with clean hands, but run your fingers very, very lightly over a painting that you like and see if it adds another layer to it.
3: As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at
1: that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the
0: economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In
4: 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born.